for me, Howard Kester is is an important person as I try and process what does it mean to be a faithful Christian in in America and the world today. I see injustices, and we can enumerate them, but really serious injustice going on in our society. People being treated without human dignity. I see it as a time, as it was in Kester's time, when churches and the church is in many ways very, very discredited by being on the wrong side of so many of these issues. Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast. This podcast is an audio companion to the book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice. I'm Shay Tuttle. In each episode of this podcast, I'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process. Today, I'm speaking with Peter Slade. Peter Slade teaches courses in the history of Christianity and Christian thought at Ashland University in Ohio. He is the author of Open Friendship in a Closed Society, Mission Mississippi and a Theology of Friendship, published by Oxford in 2009, and co-editor of Lived Theology, New Perspectives on Style, Method, and Pedagogy, also published by Oxford in 2016. For our book, Pete wrote on Howard Kester. Pete, thank you for talking to me about Howard Kester. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm excited to talk about it. I think Howard Kester is one of the people in the book that may be least familiar to readers now. Um, So could you start off by telling us a little bit about what he's known for, what his significance is for people who may not know about him? Well, he he was an activist, a Christian activist in the really active in the late 1920s and the 1930s. He was particularly concerned with around areas of racial and economic injustice in his native South, Southern states of the United States. And so in the chapter, I realized I cover like kind of three kind of episodes that at the time would have he would have been best known for. And so one of those was his support of striking miners in Tennessee. And this this brought him to national attention because he was working for an organization called the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And it was one of the things that triggered a debate within that organization about the nature of pacifism. I then write about another episode where he was involved in investigating lynchings for the NAACP. He was a kind of undercover investigator. He'd go into towns right after one of these terrible lynchings and and produce a report very, very quickly that the NAACP could use in its anti-lynching campaigns. And so I, I write about one of those. And, and, and that writing, his writing was widely circulated. And then the third kind of incident I talk about is his involvement with a union, the Southern Tenants Farm Farm Workers Union, the STFU, which was an interracial union during the Depression in the Arkansas Delta. And he wrote a book detailing the plight of sharecroppers. 
and that too was widely circulated and he was well known and 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 he shows up in labor union histories as well so he he was well known for for those things at the time though he is those some of the movements he was involved with are remembered he he is largely faded into history mm-hmm. yeah i think that's part of why i'm really excited about being able to share these stories um, through the book and through the podcast, um, because I think, you know, he's not known. And yet these stories are so, they're really compelling. They're really powerful. So I'm glad that that we get to do that. Um, can you talk a little bit about your writing process and about how you got into Kester's story? Well, I got into Kester's story as an academic. I was researching the, the history of um, an organization called Delta Cooperative Farm Howard Kester was a man who believed what he was involved with was important and he kept his papers and he passed his papers along to an archive and those were microfilmed. And so, oh my gosh, 15 years ago or so, I was sitting in a dark archive going through microfilm. It's now fortunately online. (laughs) But that's when I I first met him. And when I was invited to become part of this project and, and the whole idea is to to introduce these characters and and use, you know, academic research, but to write a narrative, I instantly thought of Howard Kester because he himself was a great writer. And and so some of his descriptions are very evocative. And I found them when I was reading them those years ago, I found them very moving. So I, I instantly thought of him. And then, uh, as you know, as the editor, that I mean, this guy's life was very rich, covered a lot of ground. I struggled to kind of find the story, to be able to write succinctly and find the story. And the, and the real breakthrough for me was one of the things in this archive, someone conducted an oral history of people who were involved in a group called the Fellowship of Southern Churchmen. And they, they did um, interviews on an old tape recorder in the 1980s. And one of the people that was interviewed was Howard Kester's daughter. He was, he was dead by this time. And in her talking about her father, there was a sense that came through that she felt that her mother was passed over, that really Howard and Alice Kester were the partnership and that her father couldn't have done many of the things he did without the, not just support of his wife, but with the co, that they were, they were co-laborers. So listening to that interview and, and Nancy Kester has, has also um, passed away since that interview. I sort of felt I owed it to Nancy Kester to make sure that her mom was part of this story. Hmm. That was a, a piece for me that kind of fell into place because Howard Kester's the, the chapter title explains that he's he's on a quest. He wants to find authentic Christianity that really speaks powerfully to the injustices in the world that he sees around him. At the same time, he's on a quest to lead an authentic Christian life and an authentic life as a family man with a child and a wife, and and he really struggles with that. That for me was in in a way became. That, that quest for authenticity in a world where, where human beings are constantly disappointing and churches continue to behave badly. And that really spoke to me. Yeah. Yeah. So you say, um, you talk about Howard Kester's growing up and that he's a white kid in the South in the Bible Belt. Um, and you have this line about how as a child, he learned the social etiquette of benevolent paternalism and white supremacy. Um, and then as a college student, you say he began to, to link his belief in the Christian gospel with the need to do something about it. So what do you think this meant to him? You know, what, what did he mean by the gospel and what did he think he needed to do about it? Oh, my. Well, what he needed to do about it, I guess, was part of his lifelong quest. 
But what he meant by the gospel, when he, there, there were some really big forces at work. He, he kind of came of age right after the First World War. And he was involved in the very extensive campus ministry of the YMCA. That's another thing that's kind of faded from popular memory. And so as a, as a student, he, he was very active in the YMCA on his campus. And he traveled with them and he became a kind of student worker for them. And, and, and the YMCA really wanted these young students in college to be part of building a new and more just world order that would mean that something as terrible as the First World War would never happen again. So he really imbibed a pacifism from that. When he went to seminary, he went to Princeton Seminary, and it was right in the middle of this battle between the fundamentalists and modernists. And he showed up wanting to make the world a better place. And all people wanted to talk about was what the inspiration of scripture meant and whose side you should be on. And, 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 and that kind of sort of shocked him. And he described himself, this was something I puzzled over. He described himself for the rest of his life as a New Testament Christian. What I, I came to understand he meant by that was, was rather like today we have the red letter Christians in the, in the middle of these theological debates that he thought seemed to, that he, he saw these as distracting people from what should be the, the real business of being a disciple, which for him came, came back to the Sermon on the Mount. And, but also came back to, he was so impressed with the, his imagination, the way he saw these accounts of these simple, hardworking, salt of the earth characters like the apostles, you know, who were fishermen and so on. And yet they were able to go and speak uh, with great authority an authority that shook the world. And that, that was kind of what he was looking for. Um, so he was a New Testament Christian, he, by which he didn't mean that you ignore the Old Testament. In fact, he spoke with a, a very kind of prophetic voice that, that finds a home in the Old Testament. But, he, but I think the modern equivalent would be the sort of red letter Christians. Let's, can we not, you know, forget the peripheries, let's get back to basics. And basics are about how you treat your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so you were mentioning Princeton. He, he goes off to Princeton to, in his words, discover the true essence of Christianity, but he's disappointed. He finds himself, you know, at odds with the place and with its people. So it seems like there's this kind of, um, this theme in his life, both in his hometown um, and then now at Princeton, where he finds himself to be sort of a misfit. Um, do you think that was kind of an ongoing theme for him? Um, and if so, why? What do you think that has to do with him as a witness? He was a misfit. Will Campbell, which uh, some of the listeners to this podcast may have heard of, Will Campbell was a, a real character in the civil rights movement based in Nashville. Um, Will Campbell described Kester. Kester was a mentor to him. He described Kester as the most stubborn man he'd ever met. And I think that just has to be part of his character. That's how, that's how he turned out. That played into his, his Christianity. It made, him, it made him have a very prophetic voice. It made him disregard some of the, the, the people in authority he maybe he should have um, been more deferential to. He says that when he was preaching at Princeton, he, he was annoyed by the fact that he knew some people who were uh, students who'd, who were members of the Klan and some professors who defended child labor on the speaker circuit. And when he had his turn to preach in Princeton Chapel, he, he said he named names and he, he almost got thrown in the lake as a result. Um, and that, that kind of 
carried on through his life. He wasn't he wasn't frightened to name names and call people out, which is not often good for a, a long career in any organization. <laughs> so his yeah, it was. It, I, I just think it was really part of his character, and he maybe this is again one of the curses of prophets. He was able to see the 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 glaring hypocrisy around him that often made him feel like he he couldn't ever settle. And 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 he was a man who suffered from suffered from depression that really intensified near the end of his life after his wife's death. And and I don't go into that in the chapter, but but certainly that's that's part of his character. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Um, so he leaves Princeton. Um, he's yeah. unhappy with it, and he leaves. So what happens next? Where does he go from there? Well, he, he so he wants to finish his theological education. He goes to Vanderbilt, where this was a place that was much more open to 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 his way of seeing things. And he falls in with a crowd of kind of radical kind of socialists who socialist Christians who really want to get stuck in to, to the work of bringing social justice to the region. Then he, he gets employed by, first of all, he's employed by the YMCA, but he, he gets involved. He becomes a secretary for the fellowship of reconciliation. He he gets in trouble as a, even as a student in Vanderbilt because he he holds meetings to discuss sort of political issues of the day and he he invites uh, students from African American colleges and he has integrated meetings which raise a lot of eyebrows and people tell him to stop it and he doesn't <laughs> so he gets kicked out of the YMCA and he ends up working for the Fellowship of Reconciliation as a secretary he he was a guy who seemed to impress enough people that they'd find ways to employ him to get him money to keep doing what he wanted to do. It was often very tight, but he, 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 he seemed to be able to keep doing that. Hmm. And in that time frame too, he meets Alice, right? Oh, right. So I see where we're going. Yes. I'd left his, I left his wife out of the story (laughs) at um, a YMCA student retreat. He meets Alice who very quickly decides that this is the rebel for her. And they get married. It's against the wishes of her family because Kester has these disreputable contacts. Um, specifically, he is friends with George Washington Carver at um, Tuskegee. And George Washington Carver is a, a pretty old man by this point. But Kester goes and spends time with him there. And this is, this is pretty shocking. And they, they see that he's this radical, outspoken socialist who condemns capitalism and, but she doesn't care. He, that must have been the attraction for her in many ways to get involved in this work. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. So let's go to Wilder. Can you, can you read the excerpt from Wilder, Tennessee? Um, and then we can talk a little bit about Kester's work a little bit more. Sure. So setting this up, after he um, graduates with his divinity degree from Vanderbilt, he, can, he continues to work for the Fellowship and Reconciliation in Tennessee. He's based out of Nashville. And he there's a there's a, a minor strike, and he gets involved with that. So this is the first excerpt. In the mining town of Wilder, Tennessee, a crowd gathered outside the company's store on Sunday evening, April thirtieth, nineteen thirty-three. Barney Graham lay in the dirt street dead. Deputies and mine guards, hired thugs of the Fentress Coal and Coke Company, stood around the body. They were nervous. 
The miners were armed with guns and dynamite, and recently they'd shown that they were not shy in using either. When the guards finally received orders to hand the body over, the miners found their union leader riddled with bullets and his head caved in. A broken pistol butt lay on the ground beside him. They took Barney Graham to the funeral parlor in Livingstone, where a doctor, not in the pay of the company, examined his corpse. He found ten bullet wounds, four in his back. No one believed Shorty Green and Doc Thompson's claim that the killing was self-defense. That night, Alice and Howard Kester heard the news of Graham's murder. Howard had been with him only the day before. Along with Alva Taylor, the professor of social ethics at Vanderbilt School of Religion, he had driven the union leader from Wilder to Jamestown to go to the Red Cross office. Kester had planned to see Graham the following week for a trip to Washington, D.C. for the Continental Congress on Economic Reconstruction. Instead, in the middle of that Sunday night, he and his wife gathered up some groceries in a box and drove east on the Lee Highway, the 130 miles from Nashville to Wilder. Driving into Fentress County in the small hours of the morning, the road turned to gravel, and then when they reached the company town of Wilder, they made their way slowly through the rutted dirt streets to Graham's home. Barney and Daisy Graham lived in one of the company houses with their three children. It looked like all the other houses in Wilder, a simple four-room framed house with walls, floor, and ceiling of unpainted pine planks. The only concession to architecture was the wide front porch. The water came from a pump at the end of the row. A small ancient kitchen stove cooked the food and provided the heat in the winter. When they arrived, the Kesters found Daisy in no condition to care for the children. Alice knew she was suffering from pellagra and was prone to epileptic seizures. Barney Graham had stepped out the night before to try to get his wife some medicine from the store, the errand from which he did not return. In the house with Daisy were Graham's 12-year-old stepdaughter, Della May, 5-year-old Bertha, and 2-year-old Barney Jr. As he carried the groceries into the kitchen, Howard noticed that there was no other food in the house. Despite his familiarity with the miners' living conditions in Wilder, he and Alice had been running the Wilder Emergency Relief Committee since November, the poverty they met still stunned and angered him. Miners worked for $2 per 16-hour shift. Before the Depression hit Tennessee, they had worked five or six shifts a week, a modest wage for this back-breaking and dangerous work. Then, with the economic downturn, they had been reduced to three shifts a week. Most of what they earned never left the pockets of the company. Their wages were garnished to pay the debt incurred from the rent of their houses, the use of the company bathhouse, and the groceries bought at the company store. The miners even had to buy their own tools and the blasting powder for use in the mine. That previous summer, the company had announced a 20% cut in wages. Facing starvation, on July the 8th, 1932, the miners went on strike, led by 46-year-old union leader Byron F. Barney Graham. Nine months later, the strike had left his family malnourished and sick, his wife a widow, and his children orphans. Thank you. So you go on to describe um, what Kester called an awesome and terrible night. A sobs of grief came from Mrs. Graham and the children. And then you also talk about the funeral that followed several days later. Um, within these experiences, you say that Kester is encountering the true essence of Christianity that he couldn't find at Princeton. So what do you mean by that? Well, this is this is part of the quest. He believed he had found the true essence of Christianity. He was looking for this kind of the kind of powerful faith of working class men and women not the the kind of genteel religion of the the middle classes that went to his presbyterian church but something that 
that really touched the lives of common people. And he he was so impressed with these these mountain preachers who showed up. He he was very familiar with Marx's writings and so on, and, and familiar with the criticism that religion was the opiate of the masses. And he was encountering what he saw as a simple faith that far from being the opiate of the masses actually inspired people to fight for justice. And so that's why he threw in his lot with these folks. Mm -hmm. So within a few months of Graham's death, Kester loses his job, um, at least in part because he's open to the use of armed force in conflict. To, from reading your piece, it doesn't seem like he ever actually used it, but he was open to it. Um, this seems to have been kind of a tension for him, um, at least at a couple different points in his life. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, he was kind of trapped into it. He was a committed pacifist. And he, when he went to work with the Union and Wilder, he was able to persuade them to not employ violent tactics. But the company was using deadly force, and the miners really valued Kester. And after the murder of their leader, Kester was heading up um, attempts to try and prosecute the murderers. And the miners heard that that his life was in danger. And so when he came into Wilder, they gave him an armed escort because they didn't want him killed. The Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was a sort of ideologically committed to a kind of global pacifism, they wanted to avoid world war, didn't quite know what to make of this kind of domestic kind of threat of violence. And a number of the kind of ideological purists didn't like the reports they were getting that there were people with guns near their pacifist secretary, and that wasn't why they were giving money. Hmm. And so they had a, they sort of had a referendum of their membership, and there were various options that, you know, at what point would violence be acceptable to you? And there was a sort of hypothetical case that said if the, you know, if, if workers were being attacked using violence, they, you know, could they use violence back under those circumstances? And I think Kester sort of said he wouldn't condemn it and check that box. It was an entirely hypothetical kind of you're on a desert island kind of situation that they were presenting him to him, but he was honest. And another person who checked that box was Reinhold Niebuhr and famously had to write and wrote an article for the Christian Century that was entitled Why I Leave the FOR hmm. uh, over this. He just thought they they just weren't taking the reality of the situation seriously and he ended up funding, as Kester got kicked out of the organization, he creates a nonprofit with the sole purpose of raising money just to pay Kester to keep doing what he's doing. So he was a one-man one nonprofit operation funded by Reinhold Niebuhr and his friends. <laughs> that seems like a pretty good credential. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Um, okay, so he then, he goes on, um, you mentioned before that you have this... Um, story in your chapter about investigating lynchings, particularly the, lynch, the lynching of Claude Neal. That story is so powerful, and I'd like to save it for folks to read for the most part. But you also say in the chapter that that experience really changed Kester. And so I'm wondering if you could comment on that. How do you think it changed him? Well, it was, it was that, investigating that lynching, but also some others. The, the whole experience of investigating lynchings so he's he's this young man who's an absolutely convinced Christian socialist, and so the way he sees the kind of the evil around him is he he understands it with an economic critique. So when he investigates this terrible lynching in Florida that I write about, 
his report he gives he he points to you know the main cause for this mob violence as being economic disenfranchisement of white workers and scapegoating african americans later on and i i, I write about this he he investigates another terrible lynching a double lynching in duck hill mississippi a lynching by blowtorch which that's all i need to say and um Oof. he by by this point he, the the economic explanation just doesn't do it for him he's he he encounters what he sees as evil mm-hmm. just flat out evil in the human heart and these experiences of encountering just just really terrible stuff in in a way when you and i read about lynchings it's 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 horrifying he was encountering these in in really dangerous situations he was putting his life on the line to find out this information that then everyone else could read about and so he kind of embodied this he he was a man who suffered from asthma and when he was under stress like that he would suffer debilitate debilitating bouts of asthma so he it, it literally damaged his health to encounter this kind of evil but he was prepared to do it because he believed that people needed to know about it so it 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 radicalized him in a way but radicalized him to to start seeing the kind of depths of evil that humans are capable of yeah yeah there's a quote that i wrote down i think it's when he's writing a letter to a friend about what's happened um as he's investigated the claude neal lynching and he says these cockeyed people who go about talking of love and goodwill in the midst of all this oppression and hell make me pretty tired. <laughs> um, and then we won't love people into the kingdom. We've got to bust this damn society to hell before love can find a place in it. And when I read that, it reminded me of, um, it's. I think the words are Joseph Lowry's about Fred Shuttlesworth and the civil rights movement, saying Fred was impatient with evil. And it, it just strikes me as a real, a really deep impatience. Um, I guess you started early on by saying he was stubborn, but maybe that also kind of developed over time, it sounds like? This point in his life certainly was had no patience for people who wanted to be moderates or play, you know, make have incremental change. One of the startling things about him at this period was he really lived his life in complete disregard for the rules and etiquette of Jim Crow that really made him stand out at the time to some of the kind of leading figures in the African-American academic and world and in the freedom struggle. I mean, I already mentioned that he was, his mentor was George Washington Carver. He was friends with Howard Thurman. He was friends with Benjamin Mays. Walter White, who was the head of the NAACP at the time, considered him absolutely right on the race question is is how he described it. And and so what stood out to them was his just complete disregard of, of Jim Crow. And, and that made him stand out from the, the sort of general liberals who who wanted to improve things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'd like to talk about his family a little bit, talk a little more about Alice and Nancy. Um, could you read that second excerpt about the phone call that Alice receives? Right. Late Friday evening, January the 17th, 1936, the phone rang at 1700 Edge Hill Avenue in Nashville. Alice Kester was tired, Nancy's nurse Eva Martin had left for the night, and she was on her own in the house with the two-year-old. Howard had been gone since Monday, and she struggled when he wasn't there. Since Wilder, Alice knew the danger her, the danger her husband faced in his work. 
She admired her husband for his courage and convictions, but she worried about him. She worried not only about the harm he might come to at the hands of his enemies, but also over his health, the emotional strain of bearing witness to the horrors of lynching, beatings, evictions, sickness and starvation brought on suffocating spells of asthma. He tried to write her a letter every day. If he mailed his letter in Memphis in the afternoon, it arrived in Nashville the next day. And there was the occasional short, expensive phone calls. He'd been gone most of the last year, working almost exclusively with the Southern Tenant Farmers Union in the Arkansas Delta and traveling to the Northeast and Midwest as an ambassador and promoter for the fledgling union. She waited for those letters, the sign that Howard was safe. They were both sure that it was this loneliness and nerve-wracking strain that brought on the debilitating pain in her shoulders. When Alice answered the phone, it wasn't Howard as she hoped. It was a long-distance call from one of their friends in New York. Alice, how's Buck? Is there anything we can do to help? Alice had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, Norman Thomas read us the telegram at dinner. He heard they almost lynched him. No, no, we don't know any more than that. When she replaced the receiver, Alice was beside herself with concern. It was around 10.30 p.m. when the operator placed her call to the union's offices in Memphis. Howard was there with Mitchell, working feverishly in a haze of cigarette smoke on a press release. Earlier that evening, they had sent this telegram to Norman Thomas in New York. Kester dragged from church in Earl this afternoon when union meeting of white and negro sharecroppers raided by armed thugs and planters. Stop. Only excellent handling saved him from being lynched. Stop. People, men, women and children beaten with blackjacks. Leaders all driven from town. Stop. We have appealed Roosevelt for investigation. Will you use every effort to arouse public opinion throughout America? Stop. Members begging for opportunity to wipe out latest outrage against their rights as human beings. Bloodshed inevitable unless America wakes up. Thank you. So, Kester forgot to call his wife. Right? <laughs> right. And so I, I picked up on this. This goes back to the, the writing process. When you read the chapter, you see we've reprinted the actual telegram. Kester's a storyteller, and he spends a lot of time on the speaking circuit. So he has well-worn sort of anecdotal stories that he tells. And you can watch the story of this telegram and um, his wife's kind of misunderstanding develop over time. And by the time he's telling this story in the 1970s, the story has turned into the fact that Norman Thomas is told that Kester has himself been lynched. Someone calls up offering condolences that Kester is dead. Mm. And what's interesting as a historian is, is you kind of go back through this story and you realize that isn't that can't have been quite what happened. And you, you, you delve into the details and sort of buried in, in, in one of his interviews is the fact that when, when she finds out about this, which is late, she gets very upset. She, she's inconsolable and he has to drive from Memphis to Nashville. and. As, as a man who's, you know, uh, married and in a family with children, th there was something about this that I realized that, that, that she was very upset. And it wasn't that she was told that he was dead. It was the way she found out. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm making a, a bit of a judgment here. But as I look through the articles, she is so upset and, and traumatized um, because she finds out late. And that adds to the, the, this whole thing. That's my take and as, as the historian storyteller on this. And, I, and it's for all of you at home, if you want to go and look at my footnotes, you can uh, see where I get that idea from. And, and if, if you think I'm wrong, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So there's, I mean, there's this really kind of lovely 
and heartbreaking thread in your chapter about the impact of Kester's work on his family and about what seems like this very real tension that he felt between the needs of his family and the needs of the wider world. Can you talk a little bit about how he um, felt that tension and worked with that? Well, when you go through his correspondence, you can see that as he's working um, this period when he's spending quite a lot of time away from home, working with these uh, this interracial union in the Arkansas Delta, when he goes there, he really thinks this is kind of, you know, he's seeing real evidence of God's kingdom, this kind of, this era, like salt of the earth people being led by local preachers, black and white, into really taking a stand against kind of the ugliest side, the worst side of capitalism you could, could imagine, practically um, enslaving these people, um, and then treating them as if they're worthless, kicking them off the land, and leaving them to starve. And he, he gets huge hope from this, and he absolutely throws himself in more than 100%. But it starts unraveling. The, the union starts unraveling. They, they become part of a, a larger union organization that isn't, isn't as sympathetic to the, um, inter, the kind of this delicate interracial balance that's going on. He sees that they start a um, cooperative farm that in fact ends up being racially segregated. So he sort of sees this, he's disillusioned and it's unraveling, but he feels like by force of personality, he needs to stay there and keep doing this. And, and I include this in the chapter. He writes some pretty tough letters to his wife. She's obviously telling him he's working too hard, telling him he's needed at home, telling him his daughter doesn't remember who his, her father is. And he basically says, no, the work I'm doing is more important than you. And if I stop doing it, then I will love you less, hmm. which is a, is a kind of low point uh, in what he's doing. And then he, he comes to realize that. But, but it's his, his kind of commitment to this work. And, and that's also why I find him so compelling, because lots of folks I know who are involved in really, you know, draining work, it, it, it takes a terrible toll on them and their families. Hmm. Yeah, you use the word unraveling, and it, it there's a sense of that for me as you get sort of toward the end of your chapter that, you know, his family struggled, his wife's health was poor, his health was poor, and th so there's so much sacrifice for the sake of this work, and yet there are also these times, like with the Delta Cooperative Farm, where there's a sense of failure in his work as well. Um, so I'm wondering what you make of this, that the, the sort of this quest for the true essence of Christianity leaves him in some ways devastated. Um, I'm wondering what this says about the gospel or about um, what it means to be a witness. I'm sorry to tell you, <laughs> I've come to the conclusion that being on the side of the angels, being on the side of justice, being on the side of the kingdom, however you want to call it, being being a disciple of Christ means it is an uphill struggle in this world. That's the sort of Niebuhrian realism, not to get too political, but the majority has never been moral. Sometimes community organizers want to think that really there's there's a large group of just most people are just, you know, moral. And if we can just explain it to them the right way and get them involved in the right way, then then most people will clearly come down on, on the side of right and selflessness and helping those less fortunate. As much as I'd like to think that's true, I think Kester's story is much more common than we think. We like to tell 
the heroic stories or the the stories of of these these heroes in heroic and successful terms we don't want to remember their despair at the way they lose uh there may be times when they seem to have a lot of support but but when the going gets tough that support falls away it's certainly true for Martin Luther King Jr it was true of Kester and in in his case it left him a little despondent he he found his i guess home and he and his wife Alice found their spiritual home in a in a kind of small fellowship of kind of like-minded social prophets christians the fellowship of southern churchmen who were it was an interracial group that that was was kind of outside of of kind of the organized church that that they saw themselves as this group of radical prophets and 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 speaking out as elijah's spoke out as as true prophets so yeah i mean i think kester's story for me is is both um inspiring but it's also a cautionary tale i think mm. but or or a cha- not cautionary like don't do this it's a chastening tale it's a like do this and it will cost you but the call of discipleship is a very costly one you know you will have family you know if you give up your uh, gospel I'm paraphrasing but if you you know give up possessions and family you will gain so much more and then the gospel writer said you know Jesus notes um with persecution <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's true that's true of Kester I'm sure mm. so how do you think you've been changed by spending so much time with Howard Kester for for me Howard Kester is is an important person as I try and process uh what does it mean to be a um a faithful christian in in america and the world today i see injustices and we can enumerate them but, but really serious injustice going on in our society people being treated without human dignity i see it as a time as it was in kester's time when churches and the church is in many ways very very discredited by being on the wrong side of so many of these issues I'm thinking of the Roman Catholic Church I'm thinking of Protestant churches in the United States and so what does it mean to speak out I guess partly through what I write about in this chapter but also um I've done some more writing on Kester as a a middle-aged man is kind of a prophet of the kind of dawn of the modern civil rights movement as Brown versus Board becomes a reality in the south in in the mid 1950s and just you know if there's a choice between moderating what you're saying to try and appeal to the majority and to seem reasonable or being prophetic and just speaking the truth you should probably just speak the truth because you're never going you're not going to win with the majority and you will have you will have sold sold the gospel short so i think for me personally that that is my take home from how it kester mhm Yeah, well, and maybe maybe you've answered this, but um how do you think Kester is a witness that we need today in particular? I think he's a he's an example of the cost of discipleship in America in the face of long history of social injustice. He's a flawed hero. He's an inspiring hero when you read the you kind of magazine articles he wrote at the time to try and persuade people they come off the page in a very fresh way and refreshing way he calls out 
evil. And for me, that it, it just challenges, it challenges me to do that. As I, as I mentioned, in his own life, at points, he compromises that. And, and that is also a kind of chastening story. But as my wife says, people are big places. And Howard Kester is an extraordinarily big place that, that we can learn a lot from. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to say about Kester or a story that wasn't in your chapter that you'd like to share, anything like that? It was difficult for me. This was a, a short chapter. And this guy, like I said, was a really big place. And he was very active in all kinds of different areas of union work, labor work, church work uh, during his life. And to, to try and figure out how to end, <laughs> mm. how to end the chapter was tricky. And for me, hearing his, his daughter talking about him and the memory, she's, the memory she had of really just a very simple memory of, of, of helping people who had nothing. That's what it was about. And, and that was the lesson she took from her parents. And she went on and had a, a, a career as a social worker and a, a professor and profoundly influenced a lot of people who then continued to do that work. And in a way, in a way, maybe Christian discipleship is as simple as that, at the same time as speaking out against systemic injustice. At the heart of it, it's teaching our children to help people who have nothing. Pete, thank you so much. It's been really great to talk with you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Can I Get a Witness? The podcast is a production of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia, a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world. To learn more about Lived Theology, visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media. This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shay Tuttle. Original music is by Drew Wilson. Special thanks to project director Charles Marsh. The book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice is edited by Charles Marsh, Shay Tuttle, and Daniel P. Rhodes. It's published by Urban's Publishing Company and is available now in all your favorite formats from all your favorite booksellers. Thank you for listening to Can I Get a Witness? The podcast.